0: Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode.
1: Humility, people get confused sometimes. Humility needs to be, um, the the, the guy can't wear a Rolex or he can't come in with the, the Louis Vuitton shower bag. But that's not what we look at it. I mean, humility... An example of humility is being open to new ideas, being open to feedback. Um, th- there's, there's lots of examples that we've been able to nail down in terms of uh, just a, a, a human being quality. And then there's lots of examples that we've nailed down as in, in terms of a football player, what that would look like as a football player.
2: I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru and our guest on this month's episode is Chris O'Loughlin. Chris is the Sporting Director of Union Saint-Gilois, one of the most innovative and interesting clubs in the whole of Europe. Despite having a stadium with a capacity of just 9,000 and a budget that's dwarfed by the biggest clubs, they are top of the table in Belgium. Chris told us how the clubs scout for character and how they use data to punch way above their weight. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please give us a follow via your preferred podcast provider. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Chris.
1: Welcome. It's a pleasure to be
2: on it. And you've got a fascinating story of your own. I was doing a bit of reading and, and we could almost do a full podcast just on your story. Um, but c- could you tell us just a little bit about your background, please, where you grew up and how you first got into football?
1: Yeah, I was uh, born in Limerick in Ireland, uh, but moved out to South Africa, to Cape Town at a really young age with my brother and my, my parents. And um, grew up in a very rugby, cricket dominated school traditional school, and we made a trip back to Ireland uh, during the 1990 World Cup, which was the first World Cup for the for the Republic. And as you can imagine, it was just uh, World Cup fever there. And it just uh, caught a hold of me and went back to to Cape Town after the World Cup and never really looked back, just absolutely passionately besotted with football.
2: But you were a player, weren't you, originally?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, pl- I played football, um, not many highlights although i would say a, a proud moment would be when i played for santos uh, professional football club in south africa uh, in their under 19 side it was a, a selection criteria uh, i was the first white player in the team as well which was um today it means that you know it means nothing today but back then especially with south africa's history and background and it was one of the greatest um, greatest moments i can say in in experiences and only wish we had the phones and the technology back then to have to be able to have kept some of those memories. And it was just unbelievable. And uh, today, still speak to my old coach back in Cape Town and my my captain as well. And then, yeah, just probably like a lot of people uh, dabbled a wee bit in, in, in trying to, to make it a full time uh, profession in, in Europe, um, but never quite got there.
2: And how did you first get involved in coaching?
1: At at one moment, I wasn't playing anymore in Northern Ireland, and uh, uh, I'd hurt my knee. A very, um, very common story, and just just was just one day working a normal job. Looked at my situation, wasn't really feeling it, feeling it, and 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 thought, you know what, I'm 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 still in my mid twenties at the time. Football was a passion, and. I, I thought well let me have a let me investigate a little bit uh, about the coaching I had done a couple of badges but really the the you know the 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 stepping on the ladder kind of badges and I just started to investigate it and uh, went on my UEFA B license which was was being held at my um, last club in Northern Ireland uh, Larne and it was it was run by a guy named uh, Jim Jim Hagen who used to play at Celtic Vigo and there was a lot of players from the Irish League on it and. I really enjoyed it. It was quite a commitment uh, to be on that course. It was back in those days. It was a, a Sunday morning uh, from ten till four pm uh, for thirteen weeks, and but I enjoyed it, and that's how it, it started.
2: Then you've you've really travelled around Africa after that. I was reading, and you had quite a key encounter, wasn't it? But with a coach called uh, Bibi Matumbo.
1: Wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Once I got my UEFA B license, I realized that there was no professional game in Northern Ireland. I was in my mid twenties. I was was couldn't see a real pathway, so I thought, let me go back to to South Africa, where I understood the landscape uh, of football there and had played in and around it. Um, but it was it took two years of just hard grafting in the background, uh, doing a lot of coaching in the local townships. Um, you know, with no, uh, with no financial gain to it, just trying to connect, connect. And each time along the way, I would meet somebody and it, it, you kind of moved up a level, up a level, up a level in terms of your networking. And one of the people happened to be a goalkeeper at a, um, a professional club where Bibe Mutombo was coaching. And, you know, I made it my mission to meet him because he was an A license coach and it was, um, I met him and we we discussed football. And months later, he ended up at Orlando Pirates, which is, again, how um, it was a door open for me and just more networking with Bay before he eventually gave me a chance with him.
2: And those encounters can often be crucial, can't they, in people's lives and careers?
1: No, for sure. I mean, look, I I had to, I had to, I wouldn't say force the door open, but I had to to make things happen uh, and you have to put yourself out there and there was disappointments along the way but there was definitely a lot of um a lot of sacrificing time a lot of uh, doing things a little bit differently i mean for, for Bibe matumbo once he was at orlando pirates i i went to go watch a game and i, I made this a scouting report that uh, looking back on it was absolutely ridiculous it was it was just detail on one game the amount of detail i went to was was just over the top, but uh, I made that for him and I literally sat in a car park waiting for him to come out of his uh, his training session with Orlando Pirates and handed it to him, you know, and so there was a lot of, yeah, putting yourself out there and trying to make things happen.
2: You coached in Congo as well and in England. So have those experiences really informed your work as a sporting director now, would you say, Sancho, has that helped you, that experience? Well,
1: definitely, because... Uh, I've been exposed to different types of culturally uh, football players, Um, also different pressure situations, but also um, different levels of player. Uh, You know, there's players that I worked with in Congo that went on to play in Europe. Uh, There's players that I worked with in England that had played in the Premiership. There were players that were on their way to the Premiership. uh, same within Belgium. I've uh, worked with players that have have gone on to to play at very good levels, and each time along the way, you're you're learning new experiences that at the time um, you don't realize. But you know, it, it wasn't a plan to be a sports director, but they've definitely come in handy, or they've definitely played a role in in, in giving me uh, my ideas of which direction I want to go with on on managing certain situations and. You know, it's it was a it was a difficult period the coaching because it took me all over places. It took me away from my 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 family. But in the end, um, you know, a, a positive to come out of it is I've I've gained a lot of experience from it.
2: Have you maintained links in Africa since you moved back to Europe?
1: Yes, I mean I still in South Africa I still would know quite a few people in in football there, and and like I said, I still speak to my coach, uh, Mr. Crowe. I still call him Mr. Crowe uh back in for my uh, under 19 days at Santos um I still speak a little bit with the with my captain then and uh not so much in, not so much in Congo um it's a it's a new a new um cycle of, of people in the game since I left there so I haven't really maintained those contacts but it's it's not a bad network that I still have in Africa
2: and how did your move to belgium come about
1: just putting myself out there um I had met a, a coach uh, named Yannick Ferreri. He was a young coach in Anderlecht, in, in the Academy of Anderlecht. Uh, and we used to chat uh, on- online a lot about football on Skype and that. And when I was in Congo and I was coming, I was coming via Belgium. Uh, it was the easiest route to fly from Ireland to, to a meeting uh, in France. It was on the border. And I said to Yannick, why don't we meet up? And we, we just chatted football and we had, we had a dinner, computers out, discussing philosophies, sharing videos. And a couple of years later, Yannick uh, went from being a, a youth team coach to becoming a professional coach in Belgium with Sporting Charleroi, And I came over, spent 10 days just observing him uh, and, and just trying to understand a little bit about Belgian football. And uh, I think it was um, probably about six months later, he landed a job with a second division club where he asked me to come and join him. Oh, OK. And which club was that, Chris? It's STVV. Uh, so, uh, it was a, cu- a club that uh, Simon Mignolet started at in Belgium before he made his move to Sunderland. Oh, OK. And uh, Tommy Yasu, the Arsenal player, he played at STVV as well.
2: Yeah. Were you involved with Tommy Yasu when you were
1: there? Just very briefly. Um, he arrived in my last season in the, in the winter. Uh, it was just a, a very brief period with him.
2: Because a lot of people regard the Belgian leagues as a kind of stepping stone, don't they, potentially to the Premier League or the other the big five in Europe? I guess he's an example of that.
1: Definitely, look, Belgium. It's a very open culture, uh, very accepting of people from different backgrounds. It's a, it's an easy, easier environment uh, with the language because a lot of people can communicate in English, uh, as a, as a common language. So, so from a perspective of a player transitioning to a, to a different culture, it's it's very open and easy, easy access to all the various countries around you. So, so players can can get comfortable and explore. They don't feel like they're trapped in in, in one area. And then from a football point of view, because you have all these mixes, it's a very interesting um, way the game is played here. It's a very high in, high intensity runs, uh, uh, lots of transitions, and. Uh, uh, lots of openness in the game, uh, lots of 1v1 battles. So it's a, it's a very good league uh, for, for players to, to, to just get that step in between maybe going to the traditional top five leagues.
2: And it's interesting that you then made the step to become a sporting director because that's probably quite an unusual step, really, to go straight from coaching into the sporting director, the more strategic role.
1: Yeah, I I honestly didn't, it wasn't a plan um, to do this. I was coaching at another club in Belgium as an assistant. And, uh, you know, the call came in one day. There was three calls that I got, um, two were for club positions and and one was for the the sporting director role to be part of the process. And my first instinct was to to, to say no. Thankfully, I didn't. And I, I said, let me think about it. And I just went and researched and researched. I think I found a few of your articles uh, uh, to do with it, mm-hmm. and and I, and I just thought about well, what were my frustrations? Because I, I was at that point where I had a lot of frustrations with coaching, and I felt that one of the limitations was, you know, uh, for a coach to be successful, there's many variables, but one of the important variables is is to have the people above you making good decisions. And I'm a, a strong believer in 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 culture as well, and. I suppose I just got to that point in football where I, I felt that may, for, for a lot of places that I had worked, culture wasn't important. Um, the decision making on on how to bring in players and how they fit into not just the club but the, the existing players there, maybe the work wasn't done uh, with those kind of considerations and I just felt it wasn't going anywhere and this was potentially an opportunity to test some of my ideas, or to test some of my beliefs, should I say, and to, to work with people that that share those those beliefs.
2: And was it Alex Muzio who approached you directly at that time?
1: It was a um, a company that they had um, given the contract to to approach various candidates and do the first phase of um, screening before you went to the next one, the next one, and the next one.
2: Why do you think they approached you as you were working as an assistant manager, as you say?
1: When I worked at STVV, uh, I did I did know the CEO of Union. He was also at STVV, whilst he was taken out of the process of my uh, interviews. But I had helped a lot with some of the, the recruitment in the background at a very... Uh, a basic level. I mean, it was it was watching players, maybe presenting the club a little bit to players. But there was a few players that had come in that were that had done well for us, and I think he had he had suggested my name as a wild card. And um, but I went through all the processes, and thankfully so, it's it worked out. And
2: did it seem like a very interesting club straight away? Did they really present an interesting vision to you?
1: I think yeah, for my side. Uh, Part of my research into sports director's role was also researching the club and it does have an incredible history. Uh, I mean it's still the third most successful club in terms of league titles in the first division uh, behind Anderlecht and Club Bruges so that that was interesting the fact that it was in brussels is so much potential and then yes i uh, to to understand what the vision of the ownership was for this club it it was the chance to be part of something real and and at a uh, i wouldn't say at a blank paper point of view but you know there was a there was a lot of opportunities to grow something the club was still very small and it's it's always easier to make those changes um, when it was at the at that stage and and um, it was just a very very interesting vision uh from the ownership
2: because reading about the club i think you've got the smallest stadium in the belgian pro league um and sort of bottom half in terms of budget as well haven't you
1: yeah the stadium it's uh, i think what's it now um 103 or 104 years old it's but it's quite romantic like it, it takes you back to all the things that we all love about football, traditionally, um, you know, atmosphere and uh, connecting with people. So yes, it, it's it's very small, it's old, it's a protected building. We don't have the ability to modernise it. It sits uh, one part of it on a on a very small residential road, and the backside of it is a is a park. So it's it's limited to what you can do with it. And in the in terms of the budget, we do have a low budget, and we've just been. Growing it step by step, and uh, and it's I think it's 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 nice that we haven't. It's not a club that money is just thrown at the problem. It was about building from scratch, um, building a foundation, and uh, building a strategy, and, and that was quite exciting to be part of. And as we continue to take the next step, we we still continue to build.
2: And I think the fans who have heard of Union in the UK, it's probably largely because of the link with Brighton and Tony Bloom. So, w- was that quite a strong link when you joined? I know that he doesn't have such, such an involvement now, but I think he did at the time.
1: No, to be, to be honest, uh, I, I never, in all my processes of, of being recruited here, I never I never met or had a, a conversation with Tony Bloom. Um, of course, uh, he had visited when he was the majority shareholder. He, he visited very rarely, but... He was uh, um he wasn't a day-to-day uh, president that that's alex Muzio, who's now since become the majority shareholder of the club and there was no link in terms of um sharing of resources sharing of recruitment strategies um sharing of sponsorships or anything like that i um it was always just um alex museo and tony bloom had decided to buy a club together and to build something up that was different, um, and to challenge in a league, and they looked around Europe and settled on Belgium because they found it to be a, a league where you could challenge. Taking a club in Portugal was impossible to challenge Porto, Sporting, uh, Benfica, and Holland for, for the for the finals, PSV's IX's was impossible, and Belgium they just felt was a a league that you could, that you could build something special and unique, and. Um, it's just a a perception that if originally there's an owner and he has a big club in a in a big league and you have a second one, then it must be it must be part of a strategy. But we're just completely we were completely separate and are separate now that the 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 shareholding has changed in the club.
2: So, would your day to day involvement more be with Alex Muzio?
1: Oh, my day to day involvement is only with Alex Muzio. Um, I like I said. In, you know, when Tony was the the majority shareholder, he came for some of the special games, but there there would be no, uh, yeah. He's like I said, he was just I think on 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 legal paper an owner back then, but now that's totally Alex, and Alex has always been the president of the club, and I think it I can see why people might be drawn to that conclusion because uh, Dennis Undav was at Union and ended up at Brighton, but. Belgium, as you pointed out, it is it is one of the top leagues as a stepping stone, and Brighton, as do other Premiership teams, look in Belgium. And he was the top goal scorer in the league. Um, and and yes, we had uh, Matoma on loan, uh, but we wanted that player on loan. He was being offered to a number of clubs, and in the end, in the end, we uh, we had to convince the player to come to us. At the same time, we had him on loan. Casseiro was on loan at Beerschot, in another Belgium club. And uh, last year, we had Edingra on loan, which is again a player that they were looking for uh, for solutions as a stepping stone club before he came to England. And you know, we wanted that speed, we wanted that quality, and we made our pitch to the to the player and to Brighton. And at the same time, he signed for us. Uh, Alzate was was on loan at Standard Liège, so. There were other players from Brighton in loan, uh, at, on loan uh, at other Belgium clubs, which makes sense because it's such an interesting league for, for players uh, before they, they, they come to one of the top five. Our
0: podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their Pro Suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform huddle also offers consultancy services for high performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management player recruitment and head coach search for more information go to huddle.com forward slash tgg podcast
2: We've written a lot about the sporting director role on the website, as you say, and Dan Ashworth describes his role as the centre of a wheel with the spokes going off being the, I think he says, 10 different departments now at Newcastle. Have you got that kind of traditional sporting director role where you're overseeing the whole football department like that? Uh,
1: yes and no. Uh, ours, is a, ours is a little bit different. Um, first of all, we're a much smaller scale, so I oversee the football department, but my first role and job here um that that went along with the recruitment was always to create a a performance culture here and that was the, to so i always believe to to build from the foundation and the way i look at it is you can have an amazing uh you can have an amazing culture for performance but if you don't have the players to match it it doesn't work and on the other hand you can have incredible players with mentality uh, of course football qualities but just in terms of their being but if the culture's not right for them they won't even grow so my thing was always to 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 match the two um first to to build the culture to define it to be very clear on on, on what it looked like how it operated and within that culture we divided it into two uh, one was a behavioral culture on, on our daily interactions with each other with our um with our supporters, with the public, um, and then the the second part of that culture was the the performance side, and that's where uh, your spokes of the wheel start to go out, where you you, you start to build a medical department with specific um, with a specific. Uh, uh, values and a specific process way of working, and then a, a analytical department and uh, the recruitment uh, uh, and 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 try to which we're 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 working hard on to create pathways for younger players. So those start on the on the performance side of the culture, but always bringing them together.
2: And how did you go about establishing that culture to start with and deciding what it would be for the club?
1: So start always start with a. uh, uh, some values that you can stand behind. And I met, uh, it was myself, the, the president, Alex Musio and the CEO, Philip Bormans. We all, we all met with a specialist in, in, in this kind of, uh, um, arena of, of, of helping organizations, uh, grow their culture. And we discussed what was important for us Mm -hmm. and why it was, and then we came up with, uh, five values. And we discussed actually what those values would look like on a day to day basis. Um, and that was the starting point. Um, and then it's, it's taken time. Once you have, once you have that value system, it takes time to then, um, get it, uh, running and, 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 and get the right people in and around it. And of course, when you, when you bring something new to, to any organization, there's change and, not everyone likes change and you, you, you realise who can't be part of that and who needs to move on to make it work. Who was that person that you brought in to help with establishing the culture? Um, it was just a, a, just a, a consultant, um, a consultant that we brought in. It was just someone who could, so, uh, who could help us um, direct our ideas a little bit and formulate them on, on our discussions. What, what are the, were the five values that you established right at the start? So we work with uh, integrity, um, commitment, courage, passion and humility. And, and then, like I said, those five values, they get divided into a, a behavioral aspect, which is the interactions with each other. And then they get divided into a performance. And th- um, we would base a lot of our recruitment on those values as well. So whether it's a staff member or a player, uh, those values come into play when we're when we're doing our work on bringing someone into the club.
2: And you actually managed to live those values then day to day. Because I know we've had Stuart Webber on and he said when he arrived at Norwich, they had certain slogans around the training ground. But he just felt they were slogans on walls, really. People weren't living them.
1: No, exactly. I've uh, As part of my um, education, when I was a, a coach, a young coach, I, I travelled a lot um, visiting football clubs and it was very common to to see those kind of things, and I think you can watch any of these uh, documentaries on 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 American sports teams, and uh, and you'll see a lot of that kind of stuff on the on the wall. But it was important that they were living and breathing. It wasn't. They were, I always say uh, when when we, we bring a new player in and we're doing a tour, it's not for selfies. Uh, it's a, it's a real living and breathing thing, and we we have um, we have like. Uh, I suppose I could call them workshops. Uh, each year we try with a new group uh, a, a, um, a way of reinforcing those values. But it's become easier and easier because we spend that extra bit of effort in the recruitment of players, and we look for those values. We're not looking for the perfect human being. Um, we we but we need to we need to have um, a. a a sense and a a level of of those values in in the player or the staff member that we bring in because then it makes everything just run a little bit easier um and we and they they it's a bit more natural and authentic how the values work and we don't have to force it down people's throats and and when we do run a an activity or a or a workshops probably a bit too formal but when we do something you know the the values they, it has a greater impact, and the players buy into it what we're doing to try and promote those and and to improve them, should I say?
2: And how do you go about finding whether a potential target does embody those values? Because that sounds very very difficult to do.
1: It is. So, I mean, any bit of uh, research you do into a player that you want to bring in is is in the beginning, it's always from a distance. But um, it's been a it's been a process. I look back to when we first started recruiting players with the idea of this, I, I look back to our reports versus now, and we've grown incredibly immensely. Uh, the amount of uh, effort that goes into it, it's it, it takes weeks and weeks of deep diving research. Uh, it, it's a lot of work that goes into it. And we've we found ways to identify them. So if if you have an idea in your head, what commitment or, or, or humility looks like, I mean, humility, people get confused sometimes. Humility needs to be, um, the, the, the guy can't wear a Rolex, or he can't come in with the, the Louis Vuitton shower bag, but that's not what we look at it. I mean, humility, an example of humility is being open to new ideas, being open to feedback. Um, th- th- there's, there's lots of examples that we've been able to nail down in terms of uh, just a, a, a human being quality. And then there's lots of examples that we've nailed down as in, in terms of a football player, what that would look like as a football player. And we've learned to, and we, we're always re- redefining it. We're always trying to improve our information, but it's just a lot of hard work of going as deep as we can into the into the background. And like I said, when we started versus where we now are now with the information, it's it's night and day.
2: Would that be things like interviewing players that they played with coaches
1: staff Mm, very careful with that because um for a couple of reasons number one you can sometimes uh come across somebody that just didn't get on with that person and you you want to be very careful how you take information and number two we always try to to keep our recruitment as low-key as possible in terms of the information that's going out it's in our favor and advantage to 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 keep our our recruitment a secret. Uh, we don't want to alert profile, especially as the club now grows. Um, sometimes you see people throwing the name Union against the player, thinking that it will will create some value. Um, but no, no, it's it's not speaking to people directly. It's not that we've not never done that, but we're very careful who we speak to. But it's a lot of it's a lot of research. It it goes very very deep into information. It's not uh, it's not um Instagram posts or anything like that.
2: Yeah, so I was thinking things like social media, um, interviews they might have done with media, but that maybe can only tell you so much, surely.
1: Well, you have to be careful because I suppose people wear hats for those things and, and sometimes they're informed on what they have to say. And also for social media, if you see a, a player uh, wearing fancy clothes, standing in front of a, a, a nice car with his arms folded, you, you can't say that he doesn't have integrity. You don't know. It's, it's social media. And I, I don't say we won't look at those things, but we might say, if we see something that's concerning, then we'll go, Deeper in the background, but a good example of where you can find—I mean, Victor Boniface, who's the striker now at Bayern Leverkusen—when we were doing a deep dive into his background, uh, we found something uh, really deep into his social media where uh, a lady from Nigeria had reached out to him, uh, who was who was struggling uh, with food to feed her kids and that, and he just responded as simple and plain. Um, uh, send me privately your your PayPal or your bank account uh, details, uh, and she had asked for a really basic amount. I think it it trans, it uh, was about fifteen, not even fifteen euro, twenty euros or something like that, and he did it. You know, we found that he had actually done that and helped, and you know, he didn't do it. I mean. He, Victor was, uh, wasn't a player that anybody knew at that stage. And so we could take some credit from that information. Uh, and it was, we found it really far back in his Instagram. And when you put that against a lot of other things we, we found, we realized that, you know, this is, this is a good human being and that's ultimately what we want. We don't need an angel. We just need a good person with a good soul.
2: And finding someone with a very good soul and a good person, it, you know, he sounds like a great person. That can help performance as well. Then you think on the pitch.
1: Well, I think um, again, you, you you find a humility, which is one of our values. Uh, you find uh, passion. Uh, so you know, passion can look the passion can look like so many different things. It can be the passion to play football. It can be the the passion and the humility to another human being. It can be. Uh, um, uh, uh, passion to towards your teammates. It can look so many different ways. So we can then find those those examples. But where where it then comes into the results is if we recruit uh, every player, we we have a we have some standard things that we how we recruit a player. And if we recruit every player the same way, it doesn't matter which country they come from, what's their background, religion, experiences. There's a strong chance that we can create a common a common denominator let's say between the players not that they're all exactly the same not that they have the same background but they have something in their in their spirit soul that kind of links them and and we found over the last 3 years we've had incredible changing rooms it's getting even better and better the the more experience we gain in this in this kind of way of 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 looking at a player other than his football abilities because
2: that sounds like it could be incredibly difficult as well. But it's very, very important—is that team cohesion?
1: Oh, it's. Um, I mean, it's a team sport. You 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 can't score the goals without someone passing. You can't you you can't win games without someone running for you, tackling for you, running with you, tackling with you, committed with you. And I, I'll never forget uh, when I was at Charlton, uh, Richie Barker. Uh, was was the assistant manager and i always found richie really uh, fascinating with the with the way he saw the game and the way he, he would think about the game and and he just said like you know if you can if you can find a common goal to get everybody behind then you can have the success but and 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 it's it's true but sometimes the common goal can't always be winning the championship or finishing in the top 4 or 5 because not everybody will, will, uh, will have the budgets or the means or the quality for that. And and if you suddenly miss out on it, then, uh, then what are you left with? So you got me thinking a lot about this common goal. And and if, if that, if that common goal was, you know, we've got a lot of players that are hungry, hungry to succeed and want to show themselves. And when you take in all the other, um, factors around them, the, the, the data, the, 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 the style of the player, um, when we can find those behavioural um, uh, values and attributes, um, then we can create common something common, and then we can have a team environment and a team ethos. And can you employ
2: analytics when you're assessing those uh, character traits and values? Uh,
1: no, we we separate. Um, we separate. I mean, our data is is very much used for. Um, uh, yeah, creating uh, football. Let's call it football data, football metrics. Um, no, it's it's. If you saw one of the reports, it's very much like a, <laughs> like a like a life story of the player. Um, but the the life story is, the guys uh, we are looking for. Examples. We are looking for tangible things that we can say. That sounds like our guy.
2: And how does it actually work in the recruitment process? Would analytics kind of get a shortlist and then you get the shortlist and you do that deep dive into the players?
1: Yeah, so the the analytics is is a big, strong part of our recruitment process. Um, Our president, Alex Musio, has worked in data for 20 years. So he brings that expertise over to us. Uh, The data is very much... um, It's very much calculated towards what we need, Union saint taking into account our, our players, taking into account our league, taking into account where we want to go. And the data acts like a filtering system, and it means that we can look across the world within reason, and we're able to filter what we want and create lists. And from there, we then need to make a next filter to see what's realistic. And then the next filter would be, um, would be watching the player to understand the style of the player, uh, how he would fit in with what we have or what we're going to need, and then of course the final filter uh, to tie it all together is is what we spoke about now with the the values of the person or who who is that person. Uh, I've got a basic saying with with good people you do good things and. And that's what we want to tie it all towards.
2: We had a big data webinar a few weeks ago, um, and a guy called Lee Mooney spoke on it, who was head of data at Man City. Now he runs a company called Mud Analytics with uh, Vincent Company, And he's fascinated by Union. And he actually said, I've got some of his quotes here, but he said, what they're achieving relative to their budget is ridiculous, really ridiculous. And then he said, Every pound you give to Union is like giving two pounds to everyone else. So you made it sound quite simple, but, you know, he, he said it's incredible what you're doing really with your spend.
1: There are some amazing people that work here. I mean, um, the, the CEO, Philip Bormans, is an, uh, first of all, he makes sure that that uh, one euro goes very far. Um, and then you have a a president that's passionate about the, in Alex Buzio, that's passionate about the club, gives all his time, uh, for the club, uh, very intelligent, uh, with his data and, um, myself and my team, you know, we are committed to, to creating this performance environment and getting the right players in. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's something nice to be part of, you know, you, you, you feel like you're part of something real and, and everybody is is working in the same direction. And I think that's a a big help.
2: He said something quite interesting, actually. He said, we are modeling their squad in a lot of detail and they're still overperforming it. There is something in their squad design I'm not seeing. And then he said that clubs are either tend to be like identity-led, so they will lay out their style of play, their philosophy, and then they'll stick rigidly to that. And then he said other clubs work out the most cost-effective way to win. And that can change. Um, so it, And he suspected that you were the latter. You were that t- most cost-effective way to win. Um, is that fair, do you think?
1: Mm, a little bit of it. But our thing is, uh, first of all, we want undervalued, underrated, hungry players. That's what we want. And we don't have the budgets to go and, and spend some of the money that that is being spent by our some of our uh, colleagues here in Belgium. Uh, we've recently increased our transfers with over, over the summer, but we earned the right to do that. We started off with transfers of three hundred thousand, and we went to five hundred thousand. Then we, and you know, we had to sell along the way to be able to grow our budget. We had to uh, qualify for the playoff ones in Belgium. We had to qualify for Europe. So we've we've gone everything the right way. It had, like I said, you it's, the money's not just thrown thrown at us and said, right, qualify. So by looking for these uh, undervalued, underrated, hungry players, um, we've also got the scope to look very uh, far and wide because we, we have some fantastic data. But what we then do is we don't restrict... We're not restricting to a specific style because then we, we we start to bring in our pool of players that we can choose from once we start saying it has to be like that. The other danger is, you, you know, trends happen in football and change all the time. So what we do is we try to find the players. We, we watch. why we That's why the watching process is just as important as any of the others is we want to understand their style. And we try to build a team based on we've got fantastic data, which we 100 believe in and buy into and then when we watch the player we try to get the player that's going to match and help us fill in the jigsaw puzzle um uh, to 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 get a to get a competitive team and we have some very fringe fringe things uh fringe dynamics of the team that are important for us we we want teams that uh, that are able to win the ball back we you know we We can't say that every time it's going to be high, but we want players that are hungry to win the ball back. We want players that are quick in the transition. We, we always make sure that we find speed every, every year. We also want the players that give us balance, you know, and sometimes, you know, the balanced player is not going to be the player that stands out and is the Kante of the, you know, we, maybe we, sometimes it's the one that you least expect and he's the one that overperforms, but he overperforms because of the way that the squad is built up and he just fits perfectly into into what's needed. Because some
2: of your success stories in the transfer market are quite amazing, really. You mentioned Victor Boniface earlier on, bought for two million euros, sold for 20 million. Um, Is it Teddy Tuma, if I've said that the the right way? 350,000, sold for 3.9 million. Um, And I think had he been a delivery driver just shortly before he joined, it was quite a good story.
1: Yeah, so yeah, Teddy. Te- yeah, Teddy. I think he'd been working for his for his father, um, doing some meat deliveries, and he gives this fantastic inspirational speech before we played against uh, Glasgow Rangers in, in the first game uh, last last August in the qualifier for Champions League, where he actually tells the story that you know we're all coming from far and we need to be in this together, and we need to show everybody we deserve to be here, and so yeah, he he does come. He you know he. He's tasted that real world outside the football bubble.
2: And it seems to have been a story of continual success since you joined the club, really. So was it your second season that you got promotion? Then the following season, last season, you only lost out in the league title on the final day of the season.
1: Yeah, we uh, on my second season, we promoted. Um, and that was us back in the first division for the first time in 48 years. And we we led the division uh, in the regular season, from I think it was October, yeah, till the last day, and then we went into a playoff system where your points get cut in half. And unfortunately, we came up short there, which we we ended second in the league. Last season, we had a fantastic season, uh, quarterfinals of Europa League, and then just missing out, like you say, on the last last day of the of the season, which was which <laughs> was painful. And 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 so far. We're having a decent season now um, in the league, and it's been okay in Europe. You seem
2: to be even stronger again this season than last. Six points clear at the moment at the top of the table.
1: Yeah, um, I think yeah, I think the the, the, the club keeps growing uh, in, in in a good direction. Um, we'll see how it ends. Eh? We're having a good moment. We're having a good moment domestically.
2: How far can the club go, do you think? What are the ambitions in the next few seasons?
1: Ambitions is it's it's public knowledge that we want to build a new stadium. Um, we're busy with that at the moment. It's, it's not easy in Brussels. There's not a lot of space. There's a lot of red tape uh, politics in Brussels. We currently train outside of Brussels. We'd love to move closer. We're busy with that. We really, really want to develop our academy a little bit more. Um, you know, up until four years ago, I mean, the academy was very much uh, more like a social project rather than an elite academy, and we're slowly starting to change that. Um, we want, so we want to see our academy actually holding on to its players and, and trying to find the pathways to the first team, um, and yes, to to be a a regular competitor for the the top positions in Belgium and as much as possible qualify for Europe, you know, become regular at that. But, you know, that'll take time.
2: Is the academy very important to the club?
1: I think for the future, it it is. We're in Brussels. It's one of the hotbeds uh, of of world football. It's so multicultural. There's so much talent. And we do have in our younger age groups, we have some incredible players. The problem is today we compete against Anderlecht, uh, Club Rouge, uh gank uh ghent you know as soon as we have a standard liege as soon as you have a quality player those those academies come and, and and they take them and they can offer them today pathways to senior football because their reserve teams play in the in the second division of belgium so we need to to make our academy stronger and eventually find our pathways to the first team we do have one player in our squad that that came through our academy and we're close to to bringing a second player onto a professional contract and uh, uh, that will actually come towards and train with the first team, but you know it, it's it's coming a long way the academy, but there is a big future for it. it. It's just so much talent in Brussels, and we really need to, really need to participate in that. But we need to offer them uh, something that leads towards professional football. And right now, it's very difficult to compete against the, the bigger clubs in Belgium for that because they have that status uh, of reserve teams that play pro football.
2: And is the academy a very good way to ingrain those Union values in the players from a young age?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have some guys who, who um, are very close to the first team running our academy and are taking those values and bringing them, uh, bringing them into it. And um, I can say that the players are very proud to play for the club. That are playing there, and um, we're trying to again grow that value system within the young players. And it's always it's always an advantage, I think, to to have players that come through into your first team that know know the ways of the club, and you know they can they can they can keep some consistency or some continuity into into your um, identity as a club. And what are your own personal ambitions, Chris, in the next few years? I don't think too far ahead of that, because we have a lot of work to do here. My right now, I'm so focused on on Unión. As I said to you a little while earlier, it's amazing to be part of something that's real. I'm in a strong position that I work with a, a good CEO and a good president, and we all work well together. Each of us has our strengths and and of course weaknesses, and we complement each other um, the right way. And I think that. That's a um that's, that's kind of a, a a lucky formula. It's it's we're very lucky to have that, and you're not guaranteed that all the time in a football club. And so today, my focus is only on Unión. Really happy here, and I would like us to to. I would love to see the stadium come. I would love to see the academy grow. Um, and I'd love to see us move closer to Brussels.
2: And in a couple of days, you welcome Liverpool to your stadium.
1: Yeah, that's... Well, actually, We actually, we can't play at our stadium. It's not passed by UEFA, understandably. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, so, it's uh, we, we will go to Anderlecht, but our supporters turn that stadium into Union. They, are, they make the most amazing atmosphere there. Um, we're really looking forward to it. It is sometimes still crazy to think that we are playing against Liverpool and only a few years ago, some of, the, some of the places that we went and we played and the crowds that we played in front of. So it's, uh, it's one of those magic things that, that makes football special where teams can dream or people can, can, can live, live for the dream. So well, That's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter, at ground underscore guru.